This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. We're going to open up the Word of God together now. Um, as God feeds us on our pilgrimage to that place and that time. And we're going to be turning to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We just started this new series last week, which would take us through, God willing, through the next few months. And we're going to be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. And I'm going to be sharing that on my screen for you. Um, but it might be helpful to grab your Bible and look that up so you can follow along. 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. And let me bring that up on my screen right now. Okay, here we are. Hopefully you can all see that. Let's read the word of God together. Paul writes, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything that you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to, Jude to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This is the word of God. And let's pray and ask his blessing on what we're about to receive. Heavenly Father, you have indeed set a meal before us. You are feeding your hungry children, and you have provided something for us that you know that we need today. We ask that we would listen with open ears and open hearts. Help us to receive what your spirit is saying in these words. And Lord, we pray that the Lord Jesus would be glorified, that we would leave today with a greater sense of his glory and of your grace and a deeper confidence in everything that you have promised, promised us through him. In his precious name we pray. Amen. So, you know, there's nothing more aggravating than when other people question your motives. You might have had this experience, you know, you know that you've been a good person, you've been working hard, and you've actually been sacrificing quite a bit for someone, and then they cynically write you off as selfish and hypocritical, and all your good work has been thrown out the window. 
And it's especially painful when it's someone that you've known for quite a while, someone who's, who's actually benefited quite a bit from your labors and your sacrifices. And then they have the nerve to go around telling other people that you are a horrible human being, that you're a bad person. You know, that's not just aggravating, it's, it's infuriating. This is Paul's situation with this church in Corinth. And he's planted this church. He's, med, he's led many of these people to the Lord himself. He's helped them with their first awkward steps of faith. Paul has spent time in their homes. He sat at their kitchen tables. He's prayed with them. He's counseled them. He's walked them through difficult situations in following Jesus in a pagan society. And even when Paul's had to leave, even when he's far away, he's constantly thinking about his brothers and sisters in Corinth. In fact, he's having quite a few sleepless nights worrying about this church and what's going on there. Paul spent 18 months, a year and a half, establishing this church before he had to move on. But he had promised, it's not forever, I will be back. Paul was immensely proud of this church in Corinth, and he loved to go around uh, the other churches in the Eastern Mediterranean and share with them the exciting ways that God was moving in people's lives back in Corinth. So Paul was eager to come back. He couldn't wait to return and spend more time with this church, with these brothers and sisters that he loved. He wanted to spend as much time with them as God would allow in his very busy schedule. So he wrote them, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. I'll be going through Macedonia. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 16. These were his plans originally, the first time he visited them. He wrote them that perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now and only make a, a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. You'll notice if you were a, a careful listener that Paul was very careful to qualify his plans. They're not an absolute declaration of what's going to happen. These are his desires. And so Paul writes, perhaps I will stay with you. And he adds, if the Lord permits. Okay, I'm, I've got these plans. I have these desires. There are these things that I'd really like to do. And to the best of my ability, I'm going to make that happen. But things might happen. Unexpected things might come up. There are events beyond my control. My plans might have to be altered. It's not because I'm reluctant to come. In my own mind, I've planned not just one, but two substantial visits, Paul tells us. One on his way north to Macedonia and another on his way south. He wants to stop in Corinth and have like a good, solid visit and really spend some time with these people. In fact, this church is going to benefit twice. They're going to receive a double grace, your translation might read, if the Lord permits. Paul is going to have two long stays with this church. If the Lord permits, as God wills. Paul was careful to say that, but the Corinthians hadn't really heard that part. They had heard Paul's words as an unconditional guarantee of the future. Paul had only sketched his plans in pencil, but the Corinthians had received them as if that they had been carved in stone. And then, as things so often do, uh, things had changed. 
Paul had actually had an unexpected opportunity in his travels to pop into Corinth sooner than he had planned. And so he made this surprise visit. But the visit, it didn't go so well. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of showing up at a friend's place unexpectedly when they thought you were on the other side of the country and it would be months before they saw you. And you're, in your imagination, as you plan this trip, you think it's, it's going to go amazingly and they'll be delighted to see you. But you show up at the worst possible time. They're having a terrible day. They're extremely busy. And it's painfully clear that your presence is a huge inconvenience. And you begin to wonder if that 12-hour bus trip was really such a great idea. Paul's trip visit to Corinth was even worse than that because everything just blew up in his face. The relationship had been somewhat tense to begin with, and Paul's opponent somehow had turned the whole church against him in his visit. Paul's words were misconstrued, and he found himself hurt and humiliated as people were openly opposing him. And Paul realized that, you know what, staying on in Corinth is only going to make things worse. So he made the difficult decision to cut the visit short, and just leave town and let things cool down. This is obviously not the time for an extended stay. And that's not just to protect Paul himself, but also to protect the relationship. And if we'd read a little further in 2 Corinthians, we would see in verse 23, Paul says, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Paul cut his visit short and he stayed away for a good long while to spare the church and give some time for the relationship to heal. Paul was acting out of love and consideration, but unfortunately, now the church didn't see things that way. When Paul didn't show up again, as he promised, there was this powerful faction in the church. They never liked Paul in the first place, and they were quick to seize on this opportunity to use it as leverage to divide Paul from the rest of the church. You know what we, they told the others? We really hate to say that I told you so, but frankly, we, we never trusted the guy in the first place. He always makes these sweeping promises because that's what he thinks we want to hear. But you know what? He just drops us like a rock when something else comes along. I know you think that's just because he's weak and indecisive, but I have my doubts, frankly, about whether he intended to keep his promise in the first place. That's what Paul's opponents were saying. And I'm sure in the church, there were also people who were very loyal to Paul, but it was hard for them to offer a convincing case in Paul's defense. And so this, this doubt about Paul, this nagging doubt spread throughout the church. And even sincere believers who really love Jesus, they saw this huge question mark hanging over the head of Paul, their friend and their mentor. And one way or another, as these things do, word got back to Paul. And he realized he would have to deal with this situation immediately. In fact, this whole letter of 2 Corinthians is a spirited defense of Paul's integrity. And when we read the letter um, out loud a couple of weeks ago, you might have been struck listening how, how often Paul circles back to this theme of his whole integrity. And maybe it even kind of rubbed you the wrong way because you realize that Paul really talks a lot about himself in this letter, in these 13 chapters. In fact, he openly boasts, he uses that word. He openly boasts about how important he is in God's plan and how much 
God has used him. And you might have found that, you know, just a little bit, a little bit too much, a little bit off-putting. Not everything is about you, Paul. Why do you keep obsessing about your bruised ego? You know, you, you might feel like Paul's wasting valuable space. There's so many questions we have that we wish God would have answered. And here's Paul using up 13 chapters, 13 valuable chapters in the New Testament about some church relationship drama from 2,000 years ago. I mean, really, who cares? Why won't Paul just let it go? Well, here's why. Paul won't let this issue go, and he won't let the issue of his own integrity go, because it's bigger than his own integrity. It's about the integrity of the gospel that's at stake. I want to emphasize that it's not a personal issue for Paul, primarily. Paul had swallowed a lot of personal attacks in his ministry, and he just soldiered on. This is really about Paul's calling and his office as an apostle. The risen Jesus had commissioned Paul as his apostle. He'd entrusted Paul with this mission of the gospel to the nations. And now questions are being raised about the apostles' integrity. You know, really, if we can't trust the messenger, why on earth would we trust the message that he brings? If the doctor has been exposed as a quack, why would we take the medicine that he sold us? And a lot of us, I think, feel this issue deeply because we've been let down by Christian leaders in the past, people who were pushed to the front because of their incredible gifting. And really, those people did help us to grow in our faith by leaps and bounds. Uh, and then we found out that these people we trusted, that we received God's grace from, they were actually pretty terrible people. And if you've been through that, you know that is... It's a really confusing experience, and it raises a lot of painful questions. You don't know what's true and what isn't true, and you begin to wonder, what if this whole thing is just a tissue of lies? The integrity of the messenger is everything. You know, in Canada, up until the 1960s, the government operated this whole system of residential schools for Aboriginal children. First Nations, as we call them in Canada. And the government, the police, would forcibly seize children from their parents, and they would send them far away to schools that they had licensed to operate by Catholic and Anglican missionaries, mostly. And these residential schools were, they were hell on earth, honestly. Children were beaten, or they were put in cages if they spoke their native language. If they vomited up the poor food that they were given, they were forced to eat the vomit. And they also endured years of sexual abuse by priests and nuns. And the worst part of this evil was that all of it was done in the name of Christ. And these people made in the image of God were subjected to these horrors to save their heathen souls. And now, unsurprisingly, as a result of this evil, it, it's virtually impossible for most First Nations people in Canada to hear the gospel as, as good news. And to be honest, I don't blame them because people will never receive the gospel of the love of God from evil, from unholy people.
And really, how can they if our own lives show that we know nothing of the grace of God ourselves? So now, here's Paul's own character under question. And his relationship with these new Christians, which is already delicate, is close to collapsing. And once Paul has been written off as a liar, as a deceitful person, as a charlatan, it doesn't take much imagination to see the next set of questions about the gospel that he claimed was from God, but now we're not so sure about. And so Paul stands up in self-defense, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the Corinthians and for the sake of the gospel. And he's able to do that because Paul and his whole team have, in fact, whatever people might say about them, they've been acting with complete integrity. We can say with confidence and a clear conscience, he writes, that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. Paul's never pretended to be anything other than what he is, and he's never said anything he didn't believe himself was the truth. He hasn't tried to massage or manipulate the church. He's never flattered people or tried to take advantage of them. He hasn't tried to build up his power through all kinds of fancy footwork. Because Paul's goal wasn't to build up his own ministry empire. It was to preach the gospel of the grace of God. To preach the truth. And then to watch hearts opened by the spirit of God eagerly receive the plain spoken word of God. And then Paul knows if that happens, my ambition will be fulfilled. My ambition to stand before God on the final day of judgment side by side with my brothers and sisters in Corinth and boast together of how the power of God's grace worked through our lives. You see, gospel ministry, real gospel ministry is always deeply personal and deeply relational. If it was just an abstract philosophy or a set of teachings, all God would have needed really to do was just to drop a manual from heaven. And the cross would never have been necessary. God could just have handled everything in an email. But because the gospel is more than a philosophy, it's more than a set of teachings, it's the love of God itself. And therefore, the good news can only be genuinely communicated through real people in real relationships. The Son of God became a human being, a real person embedded in real relationships. Jesus walked with people. He ate with people. He wept with people. And because the gospel is the good news that God loved us enough to become a human being and die for us, people can only receive it through men and women who are like Jesus themselves, living this kind of life of love and truth. And so all this relationship, all this relationship, relationship stuff in 2 Corinthians, it's not a sideshow that distracts us from the pure theology. Because God doesn't want us living up there in the world of ideas. He put us in this world, in these relationships, in this community, where we learn to get out of our sinful selfishness and learn to really see and really love other people. Where we make costly commitments and we keep costly commitments because nothing 
is more relation uh, is more important to God than relationships. So was Paul, you know, talking out of both sides of his mouth, promising to show up in Corinth, but never planning to buy his ticket? Absolutely not. That's the way of the flesh, self-centered human nature, untouched by the grace of God. You know, the flesh, that's all about making, about breaking promises. And as soon as they become inconvenient or something better turns up, Paul rejects that way of relating to people with loathing. He wants the Corinthians to know that even if circumstances had changed, as they so often do in life, his intentions toward them have always been pure. Even if he changed his plans, it was out of a consistent heart of sacrificial love toward them. In fact, if Paul had just plowed ahead regardless and made that visit, that wouldn't just have been extremely foolish. His presence in Corinth at that time probably would have destroyed the relationship permanently. You know, Paul was discerning enough. Not everyone is. Paul was discerning enough to recognize the Spirit's direction in adapting his plan. Not every leader has that kind of wisdom. Because frankly, it's embarrassing to admit that you made a mistake, you didn't take everything into account, you've got to roll some things back and go off in a, diff in a different direction. And so a lot of leaders would simply refuse to adapt. And that kind of consistency is a foolish consistency. It doesn't come out of love for other people. It comes out of pride and unwillingness to admit that I'm wrong. And I'm sure Paul was reluctant to change his plans. And he could guess what would be said about him when he left. But the Spirit told him, this is what love demands in this situation. Your absence right now is actually going to be more helpful than your presence. So Paul, it's time to leave. And then in this passage, Paul moves beyond himself and his situation and his integrity, and he moves us from that to the gospel. Now, Paul is forced to talk about himself, but that is not what Paul is passionate about. And Paul wants us, he forces us to look, to look up from our messy situation, to look beyond our broken, strained relationships, and to take a good hard look at what God has done for us in Christ. You know, we're all tempted, me included, to get obsessed with our own crises. We all have a different one. To get kind of locked into our own problem, to obsessively turn things over, to look at them from every possible angle, and never to move beyond our human situation. But Paul has developed a theological habit of mind, a God-centered way of thinking. And his question is this, how does my situation, painful, awkward, confusing as it is, how does my situation relate to the good news about Jesus? And how should that connection change how I now respond in this reality? See, Paul wants the Corinthians to reflect, to meditate, to focus on the faithfulness of God. And he knows they're not going to be able to do that if they doubt Paul's own integrity. That's just going to, going to be an obstacle. And so Paul uses his own truthfulness as a bridge to get from his own small 
relatively insignificant integrity to go from that as a bridge to the huge universe undergirding integrity of God. As surely as God is faithful, he writes in verses 18 and 19, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. And notice in those sentences how Paul moves from his own integrity as the messenger. He moves from that to the integrity of the message that he carries. Paul's integrity is vital. But that's not the ultimate point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate point. You know, if um, if a waiter brings me my meal on a dirty plate, I'm I'm not going to eat that food, right? The integrity of the waiter has caused me to reject what he has brought. But, of course, the clean plate is not the point. The meal on that plate is the point. And no one leaves a restaurant raving about the tableware. If the restaurant has done their work well, you won't even think really about the plates and the knives and forks because your attention has been rightly focused on the food that you're consuming. And it's the same thing with gospel ministry. If if leaders and preachers are living their lives properly, if they're preaching their message properly, the hearts of all of us are going to be centered on Jesus. And that's why we're all called to live transparent lives so that people can see and hear Christ through us. And so Paul very deftly and very definitely turns this discussion about his own commitment to talk about God's commitment. Here's the real question. Is God talking out of both sides of his mouth? Is God the kind of God who makes sweeping promises with absolutely no intention of keeping them. When circumstances change or the relationship sours or something better comes along, is God the kind of God who conveniently forgets his commitments? Is he the kind of God who explains away his promises? Oh, I never, I never really meant that in the first place. Those are, those are big questions. Those are absolutely vital questions. And I know they're very easy to answer on a theological level. Like, no, of course God keeps his promises. I know that from the Bible. It's ontologically impossible for God to lie. Easy to answer theologically. A lot harder to answer existentially at the level of our own hearts and lives. Because we're all living in this period of uncertainty in between the time of God making his promises and keeping his promises, at least for most of them. And there seems to be, honestly, a lot of evidence in our lives that God doesn't love us, that he isn't committed, that his attention is somewhere else, and that he's never going to keep the promises he's made. And of course, there's always the voice of the evil one trying to exploit um, any opportunity to make us doubt that God will keep his promises. And then even further than that, you know, just knowing myself and my own sin my own tendency to wander from the love of God. Honestly, there's plenty of justification in my mind for God just to give up on the relationship in frustration and say, you know what? Promises have been canceled. You've taken advantage of my grace enough. That's it. I'm done with you. 
You know, God has made great promises if we have read our Bibles. And right at the very beginning, he promised to crush the head of the serpent and bring us back to the garden. He goes on to make this incredible promise to Abraham to make Israel a light to the nations. He promises in Isaiah to make the lame walk and the mute sing. He promises to heal the sick and raise the dead. God promises to defeat evil and overthrow oppression and make a new world for us where there are no more tears or shadows, a place where we'll be safe and happy forever. And they are beautiful promises. But are they just words? How can we know? How can we be unshakably certain that God isn't going to backtrack, that God isn't going to break those promises? Here's Paul's certainty, Paul's unyielding conviction. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Jesus Christ is our security that God will keep his word. And here's why we can believe that. As we all know, making promises is cheap. Keeping promises is costly. And of course, that's where most of us back out on the keeping promises part. But God has already paid the cost by giving us his son. And when we see Christ in our mind's eye with the eyes of faith, when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, it's God's demonstration that he's willing to pay the full cost of his promises. God is all in. He's held nothing in reserve. He's given up his son, his one and only son, his beloved son, to die for sinners. And when we stand at the foot of the cross and we look upwards and see the crucified one, what we're seeing is that the gospel isn't just a bunch of words or a set of fine ideas. The gospel is as costly as death. And when God made that first promise in Genesis 3 to the first pair of guilty humans, he was under no illusions about what keeping that promise would mean. And every promise that God has made on top of that first one, every single one of those promises God has made with the full awareness of what keeping his word would cost him. And God did not hang back. He didn't explain things away with a loophole. God made those promises with the intention of keeping them. In the book of Numbers, chapter 23, there's a strange story of the pagan prophet Balaam, who was hired by King Balak to curse the people of Israel. And he stands there on top of the mountain, intending to utter curses over Israel, but he finds himself unable to do so. And by the spirit of God, he is, the prophet is somehow forced to speak blessing and only blessing over Israel. And the pagan offers this explanation. This is not an Israelite, but he's sensed a deep truth. Balaam says in Numbers 23, God is not a human being. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak 
and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. God has locked himself in through his word. God has locked himself in unto a path of blessing his people. And so in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of Mary, born of the Virgin, to save Israel and the world. When the elderly Simeon and Anna, they hold the baby Jesus in their arms and they rejoice that at last they have seen the day of fulfillment. Fulfillment. Fulfillment is costly for God. Costly for the Father. Costly for the Son. And when Jesus agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane, in a bloody sweat before going to the cross, when he, in full submission, asks that if it's the Father's will, the cup of suffering should be taken from him, the Father says no to Jesus. God says no to Christ because Jesus has become the sin bearer, the substitute, the one who's taken all our guilt and shame and filth upon himself. And his calling that he embraced was to drink the cup of sin and wrath for our sakes, to drink it to the very bottom until on the cross he cried, it is finished. And he gave up his life. Never say that it was easy for God to keep his promise. For God to say yes to you, for God to say yes to you, meant that he had to say no to Jesus. And what a horrible thing to hear God's eternal judgment of no spoken over you. No. And Jesus stood in your place to hear that sentence for you, to receive the no that you deserve on his own innocent Shoulders, So that now on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we can stand through Christ and only through Christ with full assurance of God's delighted, joyful yes over us. And really, how can we look at the cross? How can we look at the empty tomb and doubt it? And if we feel that God is both yes and no, that he sometimes welcomes us, but sometimes rejects us, then it's time to go back to Calvary and to meditate on God's total commitment to his promises. How foolish and slow of heart we are to believe. But though our faith wavers, though we are unsure and uncertain, God is not unsure, he is not uncertain, and he does not waver. He's not hesitating between, yes, I know, should I bless my child or should I punish them? God's word over all of us who are in Christ is a total, unreserved, and absolute yes. Yes. And if God, here's the logic. If God has gone this far to keep his word to the length of the cross, then there can be no doubt 
that God will fulfill any remaining promises. Here is how Paul argues in his letter to the Romans. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God is completely for us in Christ, and therefore we stand as secure now as we will on the day we march together into the new Jerusalem. And it's all from the grace of God. It's a sheer gift for undeserving people. It was certainly gracious for the Corinthians to hear these words. They had really acted quite quite shamefully. They had wounded their friend very deeply. And Paul honestly has a lot of reasons to be angry and bitter, to pray that God would take vengeance and vindicate him. But don't you find it amazing that Paul's response as he opens this book is to remind these undeserving kind of grubby Corinthians, that God's word over their lives is a glorious yes. That's what Paul wants them to hear. And clearly the Spirit's been at work in Paul. It's given him such deep Christ-likeness that Paul blesses those who deserve the opposite because he knows that they're more than their sin. They belong to Jesus, and therefore only God's yes can be spoken over them. This is good news for sinners and only for sinners. Because the, the only joy in re, is in realizing that you're completely unworthy, and yet God loves you anyways, and he offers to forgive you completely in Christ. And therefore, none of us listening today need to stand under the no of God's condemnation or the maybe of uncertainty about whether God accepts us or not. He invites all of us to trust in Jesus and to hear God's undeserved, unexpected, and unlimited Yes, over our lives. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to hesitate because you feel bad about yourself. We're all sinners here. Don't stand on the outside with your nose pressed against the window, longing to come inside. Receive God's invitation today to pour his grace on your life by coming to Jesus. The Spirit wants us to know today that if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are standing on the rock. The grace of God has put you in a place of unshakable security. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, Paul writes. He anointed us. He set a seal of ownership on us. And he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It's really a beautiful series of images that Paul gives us. You know, in the Old Testament, as you might remember from our series on 1 Samuel, the holy anointing oil was poured over the head of the new king to consecrate him for his duties. And from then on, Saul or David, they were no ordinary donkey seeker or shepherd. They had royal dignity and they were set apart for God's service. And they were now untouchable in the best possible way. And in Christ, we too have been anointed as a royal priesthood. None of us are ordinary people. Each of us has a high office and a high destiny in God's service. As those who are called to share in mission to the world through Christ. And the seal of ownership was, it was this wax imprint that covered the precious belongings of the rich and the powerful. And they would take their signet ring 
um, with its unique image carved on it and they would press it into the melted wax as a sign of ownership that could not be violated. And God has done this for us. He's written his name on our foreheads. He has declared to the world and to every spiritual power in the heavenly places that we are his precious and inviolable possession. And the deposit Paul speaks about was the down payment in a business contract that guaranteed the full sum. And the one who'd given the deposit couldn't take it back without breaking the contract and forfeiting the deposit. And God has put his spirit in our hearts as this kind of deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And his presence in our lives, as he works away, sometimes more evidently, sometimes very quietly, but his presence in our lives is our assurance that in God's good time, we will enjoy the complete fulfillment of everything that God has promised. We will enter into our entire inheritance. And notice how Trinitarian Paul is in these verses. He wants us to know that the Father's promises are secured through the Son and they're guaranteed by the Spirit. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is completely and utterly for us. And I wonder what it would be like if you and I were able to believe God's yes over our lives without hesitation or doubt. If we really heard this yes, we would be completely liberated people, wouldn't we? And imagine the, the security and the freedom of unreserved trust in God's yes. We certainly wouldn't need to uh, look for a yes from anyone else. We wouldn't need to impress others by telling lies about ourselves. We could be totally honest, like Paul, totally straightforward and transparent, because our own deepest fears of rejection and abandonment have been dealt with. And I believe that was the secret of Paul's ministry, of his life of integrity. The truth of God was the delight of Paul's soul, and he nourished himself on the faithfulness of God in Christ. And Paul wanted to make sure that his trust in the grace and the truth of God was reflected in every single aspect of his life and commitment. And he wanted to be a man of commitment, someone who kept his promises because that's exactly what God had done for him in Christ. It would be a great thing to really believe God's yes over our own life. But there's an even greater act of faith, I think, that we're tempted to miss in our self-absorption. And that is to believe God's yes over our brothers and sisters as well. Not just over ourselves, but to receive it for them also. You know, I think like the church in Corinth, we're all tempted to assign bad motives to each other. Very naturally, we give ourselves the best possible motivations and assume the worst about one another, especially when we're hurt or disappointed. And it's easy to become reserved or even to become bitter against those for whom Christ also died. But when we experience the grace of God for ourselves, when the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, when we yet again are gripped by God's total commitment 
to undeserving people like ourselves. Well, then our own hearts become open and gracious ourselves, and we rejoice in the wideness, the wideness of God's mercy. We learn to love and accept difficult people. And like Paul, we rejoice in God's yes, his yes, even over those who have sinned against us. You know, in this harsh world, there's, there's not that much grace going around. And my prayer is that our church would be one place, at least, where needy people can find grace. And all of us are needy people, and we all long to experience grace. Let's not make this a harsh place where we demand much from each other and give little a place where we assume the worst instead of speaking the best. Let's make this a community where we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, freely forgiving as we have been freely forgiven. You know, the most suitable way to respond with God's yes of grace over us is to echo that back with our own yes of thanksgiving. As Paul says, so through Christ, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And amen, it's not a Greek word. It was Hebrew, a Hebrew word that was taken over untranslated into the Greek New Testament and lives on today throughout the world, wherever the name of Jesus is prayed, because it speaks so well about something that is true and certain and completely established. That's why we end our prayers with the words, in Jesus' name, amen. Because we're responding in faith to the promises of God. It's our yes echoing the yes of God. Yes, God, we, we cry out to him. All this is true. Help our unbelief. And give us the grace to live in the complete certainty of your promises fulfilled in Christ for us. So, shall we pray and utter our own amen back to God? Let's bow our heads and lift up our hands to him. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you are a God who has made very great and precious promises. And we rejoice that you are a God who fully intends to, commit, to, to keep every single one of your commitments. Lord, we thank you for directing our eyes back to Christ, the crucified and risen Son of God. We thank you that you were willing, for reasons that we cannot fathom, you were willing to keep your promises at the cost of your own son. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the crucified one. We thank you for the incredible lengths that your grace, that your love is willing to go. For people like ourselves that are well aware that what we really expect to hear is your terrible judgment of no over us. And yet, through Jesus, we find ourselves somehow hearing your delighted yes over our lives. And you know that is hard for us to believe. And there are so many things in our own hearts, in our own relationships, in our own circumstances, not to mention the 
voice of the evil one telling us that it's not a full yes. There's a lot of no mixed into that yes. Lord, we ask for your spirit to give us the full assurance that Christ has won for us, that is our right because we are in him and we are your sons and daughters. And I pray, Lord, that none of us would be bowed down or uncertain or unhesitating or cringing to come into your presence. We confess we are sinners, but we also profess that your grace is greater than our sin because we're not coming in our own merits, our own deserving. We come through Jesus Christ. And therefore, because we are in Christ, we are very bold and we enter into the Holy of Holies, not uncertain, not cringing, but trusting in your yes. And so, Lord, we cry with faith, imperfect faith, but real faith given by your spirit. We say, in Jesus' name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.